Welcome back to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark. And as per usual, I'm going to ask you, Mark, how you are. I'm good. I am looking at the remnants um, (laughs) of of, uh, yet another networked almond croissant, um, which yet again, it's become a tradition I've eaten just before the podcast to power me through to absolute, uh, you know, I was going to say award-winning. I don't think we're going to get to get any awards, but yet again, hat tip to the networked almond croissant. They can take my freedom, <laughs> but, they but they can't, can't take, take my, my networked croissant. networked almond croissant. Um, don't have many pleasures at this point in time, but um, yeah, my week is now centered around that almond croissant. It um, really is the yeah. little things. It is, and actually, is from Little Things Cafe. Shout out! Yeah, thank you, Little Things. So last week we talked about how a networked world is more of a complex and chaotic world, but today we're going to be focusing on how the networked world is transforming radical individualism. Yeah. And you've talked a lot about radical individualism in your mm. time. What, mm. How is this changing? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, firstly, I think, you know, radical individualism has been one of the great challenges to discipleship. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so many questions around how we do formation in a time of radical individualism. Um, I guess so much of what we pushed into red in terms of, you know, formation patterns and stuff like that. And then COVID-19 comes and, and you know, is changing things. But I think some of those changes were already in play. I mean, I don't know if the listeners can hear, but currently... Uh, somewhere above in the skies above us is the Victoria Police helicopter. And it's funny that, um, you know, there's this police helicopter above us. And, you know, it's interesting in this further lockdown that we're in stage four where we're, you know, not allowed to leave our houses and go to work without special permits and papers. I never thought in my life in Melbourne um, I would need papers, you know. I have grown up my entire life being able to go where I want, when I want, not just in my own um you know, uh, city and country, but, you know, Australian passport can get you to most countries in the world. Mm. And, you know, people give you a smile as you hand it across. And um, the fact that, you know, this police helicopter going above, I'm sure they're not looking at us, but the fact is, you know, if the police did pull us over, we have to explain. It's just yeah. something and why, you know, it's not because all of a sudden, um, you know, the Victorian government, which is our state government's turned totalitarian. It's This is actually what has to be done to control the spread of this virus. So in many ways, you know, COVID-19 and the way and what it tells us about networks and how they operate um, is really challenging many Western concepts of individual freedom and what the reality of hyperconnectivity. And so in many ways, I think what's actually happening is radical individualism is being disrupted by a networked world. So if it's being disrupted, is it more that it's morphing yeah. rather than disappearing? Yeah. So obviously radical individualism hasn't changed. Yeah. Or actually what I almost would say is that we're moving from radical individualism where you have this free-floating individual who could do what they want to now what I'm calling networked individualism. So this is almost a different incarnation or iteration of uh, individualism. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is a network society connects us to those who are far away. So, you know, I have friends overseas who I text yeah. you know, every day. And then I've got friends who, you know, 
in Melbourne who live in my same neighborhood, which I've you know perhaps not as close to anymore. And you know, it offers us high informal connectivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, sorry, let me say that again. It offers us high informational connectivity. I can have information about what's happening in the world. I can look up, uh, uh, you know, how to find myself around Svalbard, which I think is an island above <laughs> Sweden, you know, um, on Google Maps, you know. Uh, and, you know, so we've got this high informational connectivity, but it actually gives us a low relational connectivity. Mm. It multiplies what sociologists call our weak ties, our weak social ties. So you can grow a bunch of um, Facebook friends, Instagram followers, um, but actually we know that it's working against our strong ties, that actually strong ties of people who you're covenantally connected to, who will walk with you through the whole of your life, Mm. that actually the contemporary world is actually undermining those connections. And in one way to understand this, there's an interesting book written by um, Brian J. Walsh and Stephen Baumart-Prediger called Beyond Homelessness. And they begin the book talking about two people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, I think it's in Vancouver or the city in Seattle. And the first one is an obvious homeless man who is living without a home and they talk about his life. Um, I think it is in Vancouver. And then they contrast it with this executive who travels around the world and is in different Starbucks and they look the same to him in hotel rooms, but both are experiencing a sense of homelessness. And that's partially what this, you know, that's partly what this networked world is doing. In a sense, everyone is in a kind of sort of exile in a networked world. And so what this means is that networks are radically changing the concept of individualism. Um, And, you know, what's happening is there's this, you know, a lot of sociologists, um, you know, talked about what they called second individualism, or this is more radical individualism. The modern world's had this first level of individualism where people left behind the rural area in which they grew up. They went to the city, you know, they could choose what job they wanted or whatever. But then there was this second phase of individualism, which was an intensification of radical individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's so interesting is that the further that we push into individualism, there's a lostness that comes with that. And actually what's happening is the network is almost responding to that. Shoshana Zuboff um, in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, talks about social networks emerged as actually a seeming answer to the increased isolation that individuals were feeling. Yeah. <coughs> Pardon me. So it was almost like how do we um, find connection for people who are struggling to find connection mm-hmm. in the real world? And so this really weird, interesting moment that we're in where there's this mark of power for people who are able to move around the network back in the day when we could move around a lot more easily. But that sort of networked identity is based on movement. It's based on rootlessness. It's based on this ephemeral, you know, ness. And, you know, I've spoken about before in the podcast and different places where, um, you know, I'd, you could use your Uber app in London and then you're yeah. two weeks later in New York and you're in coffee shops, which are like Melbourne coffee shops run by people from Melbourne in places like Dublin. And this weird sense of the world becoming more the same, but it's sort of placeless Yes. <coughs> at the same time. So power, in a sense, I guess before COVID, was the power to live in multiple places at once, but then to be able to pick up and leave. But then there's a, you know, where place is replaced with the app you know, mm. is almost that networked identity. Um, and the society is divided. Like David Goodhart, the British political writer, says society is now divided between the somewheres, 
So they're the people like they live in a town. They don't have the money to leave that town. They're connected to that town, that region, that place. But then there's the anywheres, the people who can pick up and take a job on the other side of the world. That's really the new dividing place in the world. So our old sense of individualism is actually in a process of being radically shifted and transformed. It's almost like you're saying there's a reframing of tribalism occurring. Yeah. So the, the weird thing is that hyperconnection spawns isolationism, but then also regionalism. You know, those reeling from an imposed sense of social isolation, you know, actually begin to search for meaning away from the network. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see, you know, like you look at things like Scottish independence, you know, these places like Catalonia, which wants to break away, or people that, you know, push into a regional identity because they're like, well, the the, net, the globalization network has left us behind, so we don't want a part of it. Mm. You know, in, in America, this whole conversation between globalism and nationalism, you know, that you're hearing, and not just in America, around the world, that the weird thing is that, this network thing is actually pushing us deeper to look for meaning and identity in regionalism, nationalism, single-issue causes, or even in our own inner worlds. And so those outside of the disembodied elites increasingly are pushing for like embodied forms of meaning and identity. So you've got one group of people who are pushing into this disembodied anywhere reality and another group who are pushing into this somewhere tribal identity. And in a sense... The institutional industrial age took people out of tribalism, moved them to cities, put them in factories. You know, look at Italy. You know, people moved from southern Italy, which had its own um, dialects and mm-hmm. identity. They moved to Turin and worked in like fiat factories and in a sense that, that sense of taken out of their tribalism. Um, but what's interesting is that the networked world is pushing them back into a tribal dynamic. That can be a strengthening of an old tribal dynamic where people like, yeah, are pushing for those regional or national identities, or it could be strange, new, interesting identities like furries, people who in America <laughs> have this whole identity. So bizarre. I saw this video the other day, like massive conferences of people who dress in these, you know, animal uh, outfits and that's their primary identity. They that see themselves as non-human. Terrifying to me. I'm terrified too, but <laughs> um, but it is seriously that is their primary identity. Watching this video with people, that is totally who they are. That's their community. That's their tribe. Um, and so, what's really interesting is this has changed the nature of politics. You know, politics in many countries has shifted from trying to win office by forming this middle consensus platform, which captures the majority of voters. But now it's more about creating a tribal dynamic where you know you're going to actually annoy a bunch of people and almost and even like marginalize them in mm. order to then get your tribe on your side. So this has meant everyone's become more insurgent in their politics. And this is creating a lot of the political polarization and destabilization that we're seeing around the world. Okay. So is this new tribalism that you're talking about creating a, a different tribal morality 
Yeah. And this is one of the most interesting things. And I, th I think this is probably one of the things that people heads have been spinning of how to deal with this, mm. um, but haven't had, I guess, the meta, um, you know, vantage point to yes. understand this. Yeah, in the industrial age, institutions were really set up as the main moral influences. So if you think about what an institution is, an institution is built around a moral platform mm -hmm. um, and people will join that institution to be formed into that moral platform. So you join, you know, this particular group and they almost disciple you in a way that, you know, that's why. And in the yeah. industrial age, um, you know, there was all these different organizations formed to shape people and... Um, they actually set the moral standards of the day. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, morality is now we, – we went through this phase where you had the institutional age and authority, and then probably starting with the 60s in the West, you then had this undermining of all authority. Mm -hmm. So it was like pulling down of everything. And almost that hippie mentality almost up to sort of the Gen Xs and stuff like that. It was just like rip everything down, punk rock, from the hippies to punks to just – early hackers to alternative music to whatever you want. It was mm -hmm. like rip everything down. Yeah. And you even see that sort of even in, even in Seinfeld and shows like that, it's like we're, the office, we're just playing with oh, what's where's the line? We know there's rules but what are the rules? Not you that know? there's anything wrong with Not, that. Exactly. But what's really interesting now is now we're moving into moral reformulation. Okay. So it's not that we've decided on a new moral uh, code for the whole of society. Rather different groups are – exercising a battle to take morality but what actually is happening is that there's this social dynamic around actual morality that we don't realize how much our morality is actually set by the people around us okay. now that would naturally happen in almost an institutional form so if mm -hmm. you lived um again going back to just talk about italy let's go back to say southern italy um you were formed by your community what mm -hmm. your community thought there was an honor shame culture as part of that there was the role the catholic church played there were various unions different things that are part of your community all of that was this institutional influence on you what your morality was who you were how you saw the world that's been ripped up and there's been a vacuum and what's actually happened now is it's again too. I'm just talking about Seinfeld. I know you're a fellow Seinfeld fan. I am. It was so interesting. The final episode of Seinfeld. I just thought was this. If we look back as a cultural marker, yeah. Because you got to the end of it, and they're they're convicted for not caring. Yeah. And and almost that was this moment of in the West, like okay, so we're pushing all these lines. Anything goes now. But hang on, is this bad? Because it's just producing these absolutely sad, disconnected radical individualists who don't care about anything, who laugh when Susan dies of, um, you know, of licking, licking the envelopes. You know. So into that space, what's happened is networks have taken the ground. So again, remember if we remember the early episode, we talked about that many institutions have yeah. become zombie categories. Mm -hmm. They can't set the morality anymore. And actually the morality is now being ex is, is now being influenced by networks. So how do we see this? So what we're seeing is these macro moral tribes that are being spawned by network culture around single platformed hashtag issues. Okay. So, for example, the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, um, Extinction Rebellion. What's really interesting is that these sort of hashtags, they're all driven by hashtags, really, really interesting. And they almost just begin to grow organically. It's not like anywhere there was this institution which grew up over time and got bigger and got, you know, like buildings and, you know, created its own sort of charter. 
um, it actually, there was just this dynamic, organic, almost viral element to these things. Like mm-hmm. Me Too sort of kicked off, um, didn't get that much impetus. Um, it was a hashtag, but then, you know, with the Harvey Weinstein revelations, it yeah. really kicked off. And then you just saw it. And there was almost this period where it was like a raging fire. And they were just, I remember just watching Twitter and seeing people getting cancelled and stuff being called out. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, again, you saw, you know, Black Lives Matter has been around since you know, the Obama presidency mm-hmm. as a hashtag. Um, but then particularly, again, just got this extra sense of urgency and, and, and power. It could just mobilize people, so thousands of people across, you know, America, North America and the world to look at this issue. And again, Extinction Rebellion is another one. Um, so in a sense, what's interesting about these, these things is it's easier to get this micro tri- sorry, macro tribe, but it's less like an old political party. So, for example, mm. the Labor Party in Australia or um, the Tory Party in England or the Social Democrats in Germany um, you know, or the, the Christian Democrat Party in Chile. They all had these policies and they had these platforms and they're formed over a number of years and they were trying to execute a moral vision. Yes. These are far more, um, again, organic, viral. It's like, you know, around a interesting, like it's interesting too, like you, you look at Black Lives Matter, it's such a fascinating hashtag in the sense is it interestingly, instantly demands a response from you. Mm. So the sort of battle then becomes the people who are like, oh, no, all lives matter or the Blue Lives Matter people. Mm -hmm. So it's this way of, in a really chaotic environment, actually creating a new form of morality. And uh, John Robbs talked about how you see these almost, um, uh, like almost, uh, what's he called them? Um, Almost affirmations, Mm -hmm. like, like bending the knee. Um, like kneeling is yes. really interesting. So, you know, you watch the English Premier League, they're kneeling before the kickoffs. Yeah. So it's this way in this much more hard to define. It's not like it's not an institution. It's actually a networked morality. But are you going to say yes or no to it? Yeah. And because it moves so quickly, um, it's it's really has this much more interesting cultural dynamic that's happening at the moment. Just a quick thing too. What's really interesting too is like when – Two things, like Extinction Rebellion was really interesting. So like when it kicked off, you had this dynamic where there was a hashtag, but then there was this small group. Mm. And I remember seeing an interview with one of the Extinction Rebellion people and people were saying, hang on, all you people are getting behind Extinction Rebellion and putting that on your backpack um, with a patch. Do you understand what this small group at the center of this actually means? Mm. You know, actually what's this standing for? You know, and I remember seeing an article about a couple of the people and, that, you know, they were saying these are guys on the more extreme front of the environmental movement. They made some promise, you know, um, I'm not going to get this right, but, you know, millions of people die in five years and scientists or 10 years and scientists are going, that's not true. So, you yeah, see this other fascinating dynamic where there's the hashtag but then there's the policy platform of the group at the centre of it. Yeah. So a lot of the arguments actually – is it the small group, almost the mini institution, or is it the hashtag? Same thing with Black Lives Matter. There were yeah. people like, I can't support Black Lives Matter because if you go and read their website, this is what they believe. I don't agree with that. But then other people are saying, no, no, hang on, we're not aligning for that. We're actually aligning for the hashtag. Yeah, so, okay. So it, it's like a decentralised, um, like where the institution is central, this is decentralised, so it's not clear who's leading it. It's not clear who's, whose voice has the, the moral agenda. It's the entire... Yes, 
yeah. thing and all of these voices have some kind of agenda. Totally. Yeah. It, it, well, they're all they're all trying to advocate something, but these sort of hashtags is a new way of organizing. Mm. But it's really interesting too because what this I mean, again, just, I'm just going to go back to Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> just keep doing it. Just use the affirmation. I'm, I'm fully it's like it's it. the classic example of the you know you must wear the ribbon thing. It's like, but I support it. But in a yeah. network dynamic, it actually can be about well, you're not affirming. How do we know where you are in this new confused moral environment, Kramer? You're not wearing anything, but I support the thing. You're not actually doing the ne- like John Robert called the networked morality affirmation. I think. Right. I think it was an alignment. Yeah. So um, you're not using the hashtag. So you're not. Yeah. aligning with it. And so what's what's really interesting is this moves so quickly and mm. it moves from the ground up because it's a network dynamic. So all of a sudden, you know, like you look at say, Extinction Rebellion, you had churches like where young people are getting into that and then all of a sudden, you know, they're putting stuff like, what's our church's statement on this? Mm. Are we going to align with this or not? And because it's at hyper speed, it's really hard to deal with. So pastors um, can find themselves all of a sudden in their congregations with different movements, different platforms, all moving at the same time. Mm. Um, you know, and you even look at things like, you know, I know churches in the West where you've got things like, you know, you just had the tensions between China and India. You're, I'm trying to do my multicultural church, you know, somewhere in Melbourne, which, you know, got a lot of Indian and Chinese people in the eastern suburbs. And, you know, you've got a church which, hang on, what's your position on the India-China conflict? And the minister's like, goodness me, I don't even know. You know, so you've got these multiple hashtags coming at the same time. Yeah. So I think a lot of pastors are feeling this incredible pressure to align quickly. Um, and, you know, and that flows into the second part of this, which is because when institutions are not doing morality, they had almost these procedural ways of doing morality. Mm-hmm. You can't be, you know, you're sacked from our organization because you no longer adhere to these, you know, you're, you're kicked out. Yeah. But what's really interesting is in many ways is this This is where online counseling, cancelling culture comes in, mm. um, which both the left and the right do. Um, and really one way to see this is it's freelance moral enforcement in the network. <laughs> and so it's like the digital equivalent of vigilante groups established to enact law and order in the chaotic frontier of the early, you know, you think of the early West in America, you know, the, there's no sheriff, so they create a vigilante mob. Yeah, yeah. You know, and in some ways it's less about, because a lot of people like saying, oh, you know, is this a new totalitarian age, this counselling culture? It's less about a new repressive order as much as it's a reaction to our chaotic, pluralistic, complex environment where it's really hard to have any moral order. Um, so you're seeing these as sort of these vigilante groups, but all of this is creating a really challenging challenging environment to be a leader, to be a yeah. faith leader who, who is putting out a moral vision, and particularly because they require such rapid response in a hashtag age, um, discernment becomes really difficult. Yeah. Um, and particularly when you've got competing uh, groups in polarised environments. So, well, you, I guess you've already started to, to move into this, but what 
what does this mean for leaders and churches? What suggestions do you have in terms of responding to this? I mean, I, I, I think what's happening is so much of Western Christianity um, really, if, if we're probably being robust in the critique, has been built around an individual form of Christianity, mm-hmm. um, almost consumer Christianity. You know, come to our church, we've got the best car parking, you know, here's <laughs> the best kids' ministry, you know, the sermon's, you know, really tight and we'll speak to you about money or something really relevant or, you know, provide you this mm. fantastic lifestyle with a Jesus veneer. Um, that is being completely subverted by this new network of morality. Yeah. Um, I'm sort of watching churches which have set themselves up unintentionally, and again, too, that's, that seems like a harsh critique, set themselves up like, oh, we're all a bunch of individuals here, you know, we'll provide this to you, who are just being swamped because all of a sudden in two to three years or even feels like maybe in four months, mm. they've been overrun now by these moral networks. Yeah, um, I'm seeing pastors online who are dealing with their you know, young people in their in their congregation who are, um, you know, almost ordering, you know, so creating like trauma trying to cancel their pastors, you know, yeah. because they're not aligning with this or that. Where you know, pastors are sitting there, they've got the left wing faction, the right wing faction, the environmental faction, um, different racial groups who have got different platforms, you know, going on um, within the same racial group, but different political visions um, and it becomes really, really difficult. So in a sense, the individual form of Christianity is being overwhelmed by the sheer power but also speed of the network and its demands Mm. for consensus. Um, So the old formational patterns, which really we are pressing to in this season of how do we disciple radical individuals, which required this slow formation, but the network demands alignment before formation and then can change content and direction at high speed, undoing the last formation. Um, So in a sense you got to realize that as a leader, yes, you're dealing with individuals, but you're also dealing with networks. Yeah. And again, too, like it was probably really hard to dig into this at the just at the end of this. Um, and I think maybe this is where we may go next. But understanding that discernment, just because the speed of something doesn't mean you need to respond instantaneously. Yeah. Um, controlling, um, in a sense, your emotions. To this because there is an emotional element to totally. networked reality um, that it's really hard to please everyone um, that in an informationally rich environment listening to the holy spirit is really key that understanding all of these different um, influences and moral networks and actors in the networked reality that all of them in a sense the powers and principalities which existed behind institutions also are at play in the network mm. like in a sense the network and the institution world behind them is the same things. Powers and principalities, the Holy Spirit's also at work. So prayerfully discerning and having people around you who you can discern with is, is absolutely key. But I think this is something we'll dig within, dig into deeper um, as maybe in the next season. Ah. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It's been uh, such a privilege to, I guess, deep dive into this concept of a networked age and yeah appreciate the encouragement for leaders to to take a step back um, to take a moment to to seek the holy spirit and discern what is happening and how to lead in this time so thank you so much um i know you sort of gave a bit of a hint on where we're going next do you want to clarify anything further well i think i think what we've been doing in this season is sketching out the land yeah and you know i feel like it's so interesting, you know, I 
you know, so much of what the the landscape was, even in 2019, <laughs> you know, I think about, you know, what I've written about um, and, you know, I still stick by everything I've written about, but I, I just see how radically the landscape's changed. Yeah. You know, even the stuff we've talked about in, I've talked about in Cultural Moment and even, you know, even some of the earlier podcasts in this and, you know, I think the landscape has changed quickly. If you're mm. feeling that it's changed quickly, that's okay. Like it has. Yeah. The answer is yes. This is a hugely accelerated moment. Um, and COVID-19 has massively accelerated things. Um, this is one of those 100, you know, once every 100-year events. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I feel like I think what we've done in this thing is get a lay of the land, understanding yeah. the culture that's emerging in our midst. Um, but I would love to next like start to ask the question, okay, how do you do ministry in this place? How do you sort of affect strategy yeah, um, great. in this place? And um, how do you do that biblically yeah. um, now that we've got a lay of the land in our new networked world? Excellent. We're looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, intrepid sound man, Daniel. We'll be back soon. <laughs> <laughs>